And I want to say a special word of congratulations to those of you who are being ordained. On behalf of our general superintendent, Dr. George Wood, and my fellow executive officers, we celebrate this moment with you. We thank God for you. We thank God for your lives. I was thinking as the choir was singing. That was a fantastic choir. Singing as they were singing, our, our, our future's bright. But young people like that eventually develop into people like you who, at this critical moment, come to the, the ceremony of ordination, which is one of the high, high and holy celebrations in our fellowship. Because it is a recognition of your proven ministry. You are here because we have seen experienced, proven ministry in you. And we are going to pray for you at the, at, as the culmination of your ordination ceremony. Men and women of God all over this house are going to pray for you. And presbyters and elders are going to lay hands on you. And we believe that God is going to spend the rest of your life answering those prayers. Because this is not only a recognition of proven ministry so far, but this is a commissioning in the power of the Holy Spirit to ministry at a level that you have not experienced till now. Not because of you, because of him and his anointing and his spirit. And so this is an amazing, amazing moment. You're part of a fellowship. We, it looks like we're going to end the year with a record number of credential holders in our family, the Assemblies of God, record number, well over 35,000 credential holders. About 20% of them are female, actually, and we notice, notice you have several women being ordained. I love that. Congratulations to you, too, for breaking the glass ceiling. You're helping us to do that. We've been doing that for a long time as a fellowship. And uh, we, our hearts and our prayers are with you. Last year and the year before, 2011, 2012, with God's help, you know, we actually opened in our fellowship in America, we opened a church a day for the last two years. In fact, uh, just today, because my office counts things and opens things and closes things. But just today, we opened three new churches, just today. Because God's calling men and women. God's answering the prayer that he will send forth laborers into the harvest field. Hallelujah. I'd like you to turn in your Bible with me, please. As we prepare for this ordination moment to what is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's 1 Samuel 14. I'd like to introduce you to a young man. Uh, it's only by coincidence that the first two letters of his name are the same as Josiah that we talked about last night. In fact, last night I was not at all sure that this was the passage I was going to be preaching. In fact, usually I, I, I go to a different passage of Scripture for ordination, but I just cannot get away from this passage tonight. And I'd like to introduce you to a young man by the name of Jonathan. Not Josiah, but Jonathan. Jonathan. And Jonathan was a prince. Jonathan was the son of the first king of Israel, King Saul. And just to introduce the moment of this amazing story, we, let me just read verse 6 of 1 Samuel 14 with you. It says this, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of the uncircumcised fellows. Let's go over to those uncircumcised fellows. Speaking of the Philistines. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That's what I, I, I sense deeply God wants to say to you tonight. I love the King James version of that. For he is able by many or by few. 
This is the 3,000-year-old version of you and God are a majority. So let's just try verse 6 one more time. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And the question I really feel to ask you tonight, this evening of your ordination, as well as to every person sitting in this room, because it's a question for all of us. And it's simply, let's see, what is this? This is mid-May, isn't it? Let's say between now and the end of this year, between now and Christmas season, Thanksgiving Christmas season, over these next six to eight months, what is the next risk that God is asking you to take? What's the next risk that God's asking you to take? See, in the investment world, we say no risk, no reward. In the athletic world, we say no pain, no gain. And in the spiritual realm, we say no steps of faith, no breakthroughs, no risks, no advancing of the kingdom of God. Our, this district, this wonderful South Carolina district is here because over the last decades, people have taken risks, risks that have built great churches. We're, we're worshiping in a beautiful auditorium tonight because some pastors and some congregation members took some risks somewhere along the line. And the problem is with risk is, what can I say? They're risky. <laughs> That's the problem with risks. By definition, you don't know how it's going to turn out when you do it. That's what makes it a risk. I was reading about the African gazelle. The African gazelle is the fastest animal in all of Africa. It can, and, and it's a jumper. It can broad jump 30 feet and vertically jump 10 feet. That's really high. Some of our NBA teams need gazelles. Vertically jump 10 feet. But they say you can keep a gazelle captive, captive with a wall only three or four feet high. Why is that? If it can jump 10 feet. It's because a gazelle will not jump if it can't tell ahead of time where its feet are going to land. If it can't see where its feet are going to land, it doesn't jump. I read that and I thought, that's the coward that I am too often. I, I just don't want to jump unless I'm sure I've got all my bets hedged and I know for sure where my feet are going to land. Well, when it comes to taking risks, Jonathan's our poster boy. The story is really set up in the previous chapter. First Samuel 13 talks about a foreign policy blunder by Saul and his son Jonathan, and they get their enemies, the Philistines, really angry. The Philistines are sort of our favorite bad guys in the Old Testament, and they're on the march. Chapter 13 tells us that there's a whole lot of them. It says there were as many foot soldiers as the sand on the seashores. That's a biblical way of saying we're in a heap of trouble. So what happens next is everybody gets up in the morning, turns on TV, and they see this massive army coming against them. They read the newspaper, and they know this is hopeless. The people in Israel know this is a hopeless battle. So it literally says they go and they hide behind bushes, they hide in caves, and they hide in holes in the ground. And only... Only a few soldiers are left with King, with King Saul by the time chapter 14 hits. Just to complicate the plot a little more even, we're told that at this time in history, the Philistines in this region held the monopoly on the ironworking industry. 
This was to keep Israel from arming herself. And so if farmers needed their implements sharpened, they had to go to the Philistines. And if you needed your weapons taken care of, you had to go to your enemy, the Philistines. They held the monopoly. And so can you believe this? When this massive army of the Philistines is on the charge against Israel, Israel only has two swords to its name. King Saul has one of the swords and Prince Jonathan, his son, has the other sword. Can you imagine this? Only two swords. So here's the picture. God's people are hopelessly outnumbered. They're pitifully under-resourced. And most of the volunteers are in hiding. I mean, this sounds just like church work to me. And so Jonathan says, well, somebody's got to do something around here. And so he says to his armor bearer, he says, you see that pass over there? We're going to go over to those uncircumcised fellows. We're going to go over to our favorite bad guys. And he said, perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. For all I know is that he's able by many or by few. He's saying, armor bearer, there may only be two of us and one sword between us. But all I know is our God doesn't need a lot from our side of the equation. He's able by many or by few. Now, I once heard this story told from the perspective of the armor bearer, and it forever changed how I've read this story. Because if I was armor bearer, I would have said, oh, Jonathan, time out right there. Just, would you rewind that just a second? Please tell me you did not say Perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. I mean, Jonathan, perhaps. What's this perhaps stuff? I mean, tell me you've been to faith assembly and had at least three prophetic confirmations. Tell me at least you think you have a word from God on this. If, if the two of us and one sword are going to go out to that army that's attacking us. And Jonathan said, I'm sorry, armor bearer. I don't have a word from God on this. I don't have anything but a perhaps. But in the words of one friend of mine, we serve the God who turns our maybes into his miracles. And Jonathan said, I don't know for sure what's going to happen. All I've got is a perhaps. All I know is we can't sit here. Somebody's got to do something. and We're going to take a risk because this is the one thing I know for sure. He is able by many or by few. It amazes me what Jonathan doesn't do here. Jonathan doesn't do, you know, the despairing thing. I've lost track of how many people I've heard say, well, after all these days given, blah, 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 blah. I mean, what difference can one person make anyway? I mean, why should I put a lot of risk on the table? I mean, I mean what, what can just one person do anyway? I want to tell you, a risk taker never thinks that way. Of course, you know to your core, because you walk with God, that one person could change the world. Neither does he do the insecure thing, like, well, I don't know if I feel qualified to attack a whole army all by myself with one sword. Like, who is? I want to tell you this. Listen to me carefully. God's greatness makes your insecurities irrelevant. Because this is not about what you bring to the task. This is about the God who's able by many, or if all he's got is a few and a little bit, that's enough. Because it's him, not you. Neither does he do the victim thing. He doesn't do the, man, how come when something needs done around this district, it's me they always call on. I I mean, what about these other deadbeats around here? Why don't they do something? 
You know, and my dad, I mean, he got us into this mess. I mean, he's the king. Why didn't he do something about this? He's not complaining about his district superintendent. He's not complaining about all the perceived deadbeats that are around him in the district. He's just saying, somebody's got to do something, so it's going to be me. He doesn't do the victim, why me? Why is it always me that has to fix things around here? He doesn't do. Instead, he says to his armor bearer, he said, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Maybe the Lord will do something if we do something. All I know is able. Hallelujah. Listen, he's able by many or by few. I want to tell you, he's not intimidated by the things that intimidate you. He's not overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm you. He's not perplexed by the things that perplex you, as if he's up there scratching his cosmic head saying, oh no, what do I do now? I have no idea. Listen, that's not the God you serve. I love what Psalm 115 verse 3 says about our God. It says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he wants. I love that. I mean, he's in heaven, so you can't contain him. And he does whatever he wants, so you can't control him. I mean, what do you do with a God who's alive and loose? You can't tame him. You can't domesticate him. You can't, you, you, you can't reduce him. You can't weaken him with your weakness. You can't make him nervous with your nervousness. You can't make him fearful with your fear. He is able by many or by few. In fact, I think the Apostle Paul says this. God does his best work in our weakness. It's hard to feel weak. And so we want to do all we can to avoid it. But God says, I do my best work when you're weak. You know, it's not like God in his sovereign self is up there somewhere and saying, you know, if I could just find a rocket scientist and make him general secretary of the Sons of God, just think of finally what I could get done around here. You know what? Listen, when you're a great... When you're as great as he is, you're just hard to impress. He's just not impressed with the best of what we bring. Jonathan got this somehow. He said, I got one armor bearer, I got one sword, and I got people like the sands of the seashores running after me. But it doesn't matter. Who knows what will happen? Somebody's got to take a risk knowing only one thing for sure. He's able by many or by few. He doesn't have to be impressed with the raw material. He is, he is just his great sovereign self. And he's strong in that. So Jonathan says to Armour Bear, I got a plan. Armour Bear says, we could use a plan right now. Jonathan said, here's our plan. See that pass there? There's a cliff up there, a cliff up there, pretty steep slope up to teach one. There are Philistine outposts up there just keeping an eye on the lay of the land and what's about to happen. And Jonathan says, we're going to go out right in the middle of, of that valley, right between those two passes right between those two cliffs, in the middle of that pass. And we're going to do whatever it takes to get their attention. We'll we'll jump up and down. We'll wave our arms. We'll yell, stand on our heads if we have to. We'll get their attention. And then we're going to wait for what they say. Most likely they will say, hey, you guys, stay there. We're coming down to get you. And they'll probably come pouring down that slope. And, well, Armour Bear, it's been nice knowing you. It's been a short life, but it's been nice knowing you. But. If they say what's probably the less likely thing, if they say, hey, you guys, why don't you come up here and see us? And that's our sign, and we attack. <laughs> Armor bearers going, good, uh, go on. And Jonathan said, no, that's the plan. There's no going on. Uh, Armor bearer says, 
Jonathan, I, I've been to the University of South Carolina. I took Logic 1001. They taught us there's always a creative third alternative. <laughs> Let me get this plan right. We go out there. We get their attention. They will probably say, stay there. We're coming down to get you. And it's, we're dead ducks, right? I mean, <clears throat> life over, right? Yeah. Or we... Or we attack them all by ourselves with one sword? I mean, there's got to be a creative third alternative. And Jonathan said, Dharma Bear, I'm sorry. Uh, that is the plan. No third alternative, just two alternatives. Either we, either we win or we die trying. This, I wonder what has happened to that spirit in us. All we have is a maybe. I, I, I can't tell you what's going to turn out for you who are being ordained tonight and what's not going to turn out in the years ahead. Some of you may get very hurt. Some of you may take nations for God. I don't know what some of the risk you will take. I don't know what the end will be. All I know is that we know one thing for sure. It, the pressure's on him, not us. Because he's able by many or by few. And that even though we can't guarantee the outcome, we are determined that there's no other options but winning or dying trying. Someone said when we, someone said when we see Jesus someday, Jesus isn't going to be looking for our medals, our titles, or our degrees. He's going to be looking for the scars. He's going to be looking for the people who decided, here's how I'm going to live because I know who he is. I'm going to win or die trying. No other option. Some of us, you know, we just live far too safely. We're bound by the fear of failure. We're bound by the fear of what people will think about us. I want to tell you, you take a risk, and the people throwing probably the most debilitating shots at you will probably be people in the faith family themselves. I mean, you're going to get criticized. You're going to get misunderstood. And your motives, that's the worst thing when they question your motives. So you're just trying to build your own kingdom. You're just trying to prove this. You know, and, it, and they, they just misjudge our hearts. And I want to tell you, you're going to get shot at with friendly fire. And some of us, we don't want to take a risk because, you know, that's just too painful. And some of us, we, we just, you know, it's just too hard leaving what's secure and familiar and we just want to live safe. We just want to have our nice little ministry. Just, just make it to retirement. Just kind of do it. God forbid that we ever come off the edge. God help us. Although we don't have any for sures, all we have is a bunch of maybes in our future. What we do also have is that with us into that future is a God who's able by many or by few. And so we can either win or die trying. What we're not going to do is sit still. So Jonathan and his armor bearer go out there in the middle of the pass. and They start jumping up and down, waving their arms, going, you know, shouting. They, sure enough, they get the Philistines' attention up there. And I can see a couple of the sentries up there, two Philistines, middle of the afternoon. I can, I can see what, one of the Philistines nudge the other and say, hey, look. In fact, the text, as you keep reading through chapter 14, literally says that the one Philistine said to another, look, the Israelites are coming out of their holes bunch of cowards, in other words. Look, they're coming out of their holes. I can just see him next saying next, let's go get them. And the other Philistine says, yeah, we could do that. But you know what? 
so far, this has been a boring war. I mean, I mean, they're all hiding. We're going to kill them. They only got two swords. Let's have some fun. Look at them act. They look, look like fools down there. I bet you if we actually asked them to come up here, they would come. Let's tell them we're going to really show them something. So sure enough, they yell down, Hey, you Philistines. Hey, you Israelites. This is what the Philistines are yelling. You Israelites, why don't you come up here and we'll really show you something. Jonathan nudges Aaron Bear and says, You hear that? Aaron Bear says, I didn't hear anything. He said, that's our sign. And what follows is like the most bizarre picture, I think, in all the Bible. I mean, I, I happen to think this makes David and Goliath pale. Can you imagine this? It'd be a fairly steep slope. The scriptures tell us that they actually had to climb up on all fours. Jonathan went ahead. Armor bearer was behind him with one of the two swords of Israel. And they are climbing up this slope. Here's the sentries. And then beyond, an army like sands on the seashore in number. And these two little guys with one sword are climbing up all fours, yelling, Charge! <laughs> Scriptures tell us they get to the top. And uh, they get those sentries disoriented pretty soon. Jonathan is able to knock 20 guys to the ground and armor bearer was following along, finishing them off with his sword. And soon there's 20 dead Philistines lying on the ground. And then if you still have chapter 14 open, verse 15 tells us it was at that point that God took over. God took over. From a guy who had no assurances. All he had a mate was a maybe, but he knew this for sure. God's able by many or by few. And he was either going to win or die trying. And they go up and they kill 20 Philistines. And all of a sudden, verse 15 says, Then panic struck the whole army. And those in the camp and the field and those in the outposts and the raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Now, it's interesting the word, you, word, uh, use of the word panic. I mean... I mean, you're sitting in there, you're a Philistine, you're supplied to the hill, you've got all the weapons you could ever want, you're surrounded by tents as far as you can see, and fellow soldiers, and you've got two little guys running at you with one sword, yelling, charge! And it said, all of a sudden, they just like, like, just were horrified, just like panic, grunt. oh no, we're dead meat! Two little guys running after him with one sword. Thousands of soldiers. All of a sudden, a panic sent from God. And then God starts to shake the ground under their feet. And what happens is the entire army starts melting away. Two little guys after him. And thousands of men are running away from them. Horrified, in panic, with the ground shaking under their feet. Saul eventually says, what's that going on? They could hear it. And some guy comes running back and says, Saul, you won't believe this, but your son's attacking that army all by himself, and he's winning. Saul said, we can't let the kids have all the fun. So he marshals his few hundred soldiers who were still with me and the other sword, and they go, and an incredible victory is won for Israel that day. Because Jonathan said, perhaps if we'll do something, We'll take a risk. Perhaps the Lord will work on our behalf. Is all I know. 
is that he is able by many or by few. And that's the question I haven't been able to get off my heart for tonight. I want to ask you, what's the next risk you're going to take for God? All it's going to have is a maybe associated. If, if it's got a certainty associated, it's not a risk. It's not going to take faith. But God's going to do some incredible things. I just believe God plans on shaking the ground under the feet of the enemy in the cities and the towns that you serve in. I believe we're going to see God begin to shake the ground under the feet of the enemy in our nation. It's going to be on people who have finally said, I don't have any certainty, but I know that he's able by many or by few, and I'm either going to win or die trying. You know, I've, I've felt in my spirit that for a few of you in this room, the risk you're going to need to take this next six months is just to get over some personal hurt. It's been a great excuse for you so far. Things people have said to you. I tell people, if you haven't been hurt in church, you haven't lived. I mean, it's just going to happen. You know, you got to get over it. You know, and you're, I tell you, it takes courage when your biggest critic ends up in the hospital and you're the guy who's got to visit him. And you can't walk in that room and say, oh, God got you, huh? <laughs> you know, you may believe it, but you can't say it. You know, if you pastor five people, for every five people you pastor in American culture today, two of them is emotionally unhealthy. They're broken people, at least two out of five. If you want to lie in bed in the middle of the night and let two unhealthy people for every five in your church define you and go over their criticisms and internalize and personalize their word and, and, and let hurt become your excuse for, for not taking risks anymore, I mean, go ahead, but God's got something better for you. I just feel like maybe in the next few months there's a relationship to restore or at least there's stuff to let go of and you just start thinking and acting radically different than you have before, not defined and controlled by your critics or the people that have hurt you. It's going to take a lot of courage to do that. I feel like some of you, you're, you know, you know what your ministry is doing is maybe fine, but it's not reaching the people it could. And you're just going to have to change the way you're doing some things. Change is one of those nasty words. And it's hard leading change. It means you're going to have to take time to listen to people. I, I'm not a, I don't buy into, you buy into my vision, otherwise go find another church. I think we need to give people chance. I don't like change when it's imposed on me, but it's always got to be related to the mission. And, and you've got to listen to people. And, and, and it's going to be risky to, to listen to people. I, it's a bad day in my marriage when I'm saying to my wife, you shouldn't feel that way. You know, I get nowhere when I judge her feelings. And, you know, people are going to have all kinds of feelings when you bring change. They're going to criticize you. You're going to have to have the patience of Job to listen to them. And, and you may not agree and you can't go their way, but at least you'll validate them. And you'll, you'll say, I understand that. And you'll work with them and you'll love them. And you'll, you'll take the risk of saying, I think we can do this together. And it may take a little time. And it may take a lot of conversations and a lot of listening and a lot of bringing people in the loop until I make decisions that affect their lives. But we will treat people with respect. We will treat people right. I'm not going to do the control top-down thing. I'm not some kind of dictator judging them and telling them they got a rebellious spirit if they don't agree with everything I say. I'm going to love them. I'm going to lead them like Jesus told me to lead them. You know what? It's going to be risky to change your leadership style and bring people with you, but do things differently at the same time. It's going to be risky. It's going to be risky to trust people. It's going to be risky to trust those people in your church. You're not paid to do all the ministry. 
you're not paid just to minister to people. If you're a spiritual leader, you're paid to do ministry through people. You're, that's why God baptizes everybody in the Holy Spirit, because he wants to use everybody. You're a servant to the spiritual potential of every person that sits there. Struck me a number of years ago. I'd been preaching for years. Finally, it hit me. People don't come to church, so I get to preach. I get to preach because I'm a servant to the potential in every one of them. I'm here for them. And maybe it's trusting people because, because it's unbelievable what people can do when they finally feel they've been validated and and, 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 and the environment there is there where it's safe for them to take risks as well. And they won't be punished for failing. You just want them taking risks. Ten years ago right now, I was just finishing a tenure of pastoring at Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's the church that Hulda Bentain grew up in when she was a young girl. A great church with a hundred-year history in Canada. And had a wonderful three years there. And had, a, had a couple on staff not on staff, they were just volunteers, but he was on my board, Ken, and Val was in the choir. Ken and Val, they were about 50 years old at the time. And uh, Ken and Val were stunningly attractive. You, you, you could have called them Ken and Barbie and put them on the front of any fashion magazine in America. And they were rel- relatively affluent. They had their own office design company in, in Van- the city of Vancouver. They were affluent. They were stunningly attractive. They were friendly they, they grew up in the Pentecostal church. They were, they were your model volunteers. But God, they started, they, they just started getting inspired during our time all together there. They, they started asking the Lord, what risk do you want us to take next? I mean, is there something we're not doing that you want us to do? And you know what their great risk was? It was that we are going to ask, we're going to ask during church, we're going to ask the Lord to lead us to somebody to invite out for lunch after church. There's a lot of organized ministries in a church, but I believe some of the best are are just loving on each other and making sure you never leave the church building without somebody you don't know uh, hearing from your lips as you look them in the eyes saying, it was really wonderful to have you here. Well, they felt they needed to do a little bit more. And and it's a risk because you're going to ask someone out for lunch and they may say, I don't know you. I'm not going out to lunch with you. Or you go out and who knows, we'll even be able to have a conversation. They might be the hardest people in the world to talk to. I mean, it's a risk. But they said, we're going to ask God to lead us to somebody to take out the lunch. Well, Ken being on the board, he's one of our prayer workers. During worship time, we'd have board members come and, and pastor to the front. And anybody who wanted prayer during worship time could come forward for prayer. And this 20-something kid off the streets of Vancouver comes up. I don't know if you've ever been in church in the life. Ken prays for him. He goes back to his seat. He says, Val, I think I know who we're supposed to take out to lunch today. They look for this guy after service. a big church, about 1,200 people there that morning. And, and they... They looked for that guy, and they said, would you like to go out to lunch for us? You know, and when was the last time Ken and Barbie ever invited a guy like that out to lunch? And he said, of course. And Ken and Barbie, uh, Ken and Val paid. <laughs> Ken and Val paid. Obviously, the guy came back the next week. Now, you can't script this, and there's no guarantee that that lunch would even turned out, but they took a risk. Next guy came back, of course, with two or three of his friends. And found Ken and Val at the end of the service. Oh, by the way, that was a great lunch last Sunday. I'd like you to invite, I'd like you to, I'd like to introduce you to some of my friends. Oh, Ken and Val end up taking four or five of them out to lunch next week. The following week, they bring a few more of their friends. Ken and Val take 10 people out to lunch. This went on for two months. Finally, Ken, because he was sitting on the board, he starts saying to the board, he said, uh, we, 
We took 35 people out to lunch last Sunday. And it's expensive. But he said, we did go around the table and we added up all the jail time. And it was a very large number. (laughs) These are the most unlikely people in the world. Ken and Barbie, you know, pristine Pentecostal people, affluent, wealthy, you know, model volunteers. But they said, forget it all. We want to take a risk. We want to live on the edge again. And for them, it was just, who do we invite out for lunch and do something we've never done before? This Sunday, Ken and Val will meet with 150 people that they will have church with and feed in a renovated warehouse right beside that church. I was there a few months ago and saw it for myself. 150 people. And the first kid that they invited out is still part of that ministry. Because he's able by many or by few. Or maybe, especially as you're being ordained tonight, maybe the risk is to say, God, I'm going to take my template off my future. And I'm going to let you be the sovereign God that you are. And I'm going to determine, I'm not just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to really listen to your voice and do what you tell me to do. Elizabeth Dole, you know, the former senator and president of American Red Cross, she said years ago when I went to Washington, D.C., she said, as a young attorney, I had God stuffed away in the file folder of, filing cabin in my life somewhere. She said, one day, these are her words, one day, one day, it dawned on me that if Jesus is who he says he is, then I needed to resign as the master of my own universe. And she said, to my surprise, he accepted my resignation. (laughs) That could be the biggest risk any of us in this room take, to get out of the driver's seat, To say, God, from here on in, it's not not just what's easy for me. It's not just what I'd prefer. It's not just what I want. It's just not not just the way I think it ought to be done. But I'm going to listen to your voice. I'm going to resign as the master of my own future and destiny. And I'm going to let you be your sovereign self in me. And I guarantee you, you're going to have to fasten your seatbelts. Because it's going to be a surprisingly sovereign, adventurous ride. And it's going to be full of a lot of maybes and a lot of perhapses. But the God who goes with you is able by many or by few. Will you stand a moment? Will you just praise this awesome God? Thank you, Lord, for your greatness. Thank you for your power. Thank you, oh God, that you have begun a good work in us. So complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Help us, oh God. Help us to take some risks. If we've got to get over some things, Lord. Uh, the hurts, the things, the, the, the failures of the past. And we're just using them as excuses not to take risks anymore. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to let it go. Lord, if there's change that needs to happen in our ministries so that more people can be reached for you, help us to take the risk to lead change and not just, not just maintain the status quo. Help us to, to take the risk of trusting and encouraging people in our congregations. They may not be credentialed, but you can use them incredibly like Ken and Val. Make us believers in people. Help us to take the risk to trust people, even though sometimes they're going to let us down. Help us, oh God, to do ministry through people and not to them. And most of all, we give you our futures. We resign as the masters of our own destinies. Lord, we ask that you... Oh, sovereign, mighty, awesome God who dwells in the heavens and does whatever he wants. We pray that you will go with us and shape our future for the glory of God and the sake of lost people in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Amen, amen, amen. amen.
Praise the Lord. Ready to take a risk? Amen. It's a delight to have you here tonight, and uh, you can be seated at this time. What a special time, because God is still calling people into the ministry. And I would like to say that though all of the candidates that we have before us tonight did not come through our district school of ministry, we did have some that came to their place of ordination, uh, the finishing of their courses through that. And we're delighted to tell you that this evening. To have ten candidates before us tonight for ordination is quite uh, exciting. And uh, we're glad to see that here. Before we recognize these ordination candidates by name, we wish to acknowledge those among us who completed the requirements for a new credential or an upgrade since the last district council. All those who received a new credential or were upgraded in your credential since the last district council, please stand as your name is called. Travis Allen, Angela Ains, Dwayne Ains, Joe Holloway, Lauren Hartzler, Christina Mabelot, Silver Mabelot, Stephen Miller, Charles Rhodes, Charles Thompson, and John Watts. Let me speak just a moment to these folks that are standing. Oh, you, can, you can go ahead and be seated. Let me just speak to you a moment about, uh, about what is going to happen in this ordination service. The candidates will be ordained into the gospel ministry for which they have prepared them, themselves over a lengthy period of time. This didn't just happen yesterday. It's been a, a grueling schedule of course taking and ministry opportunities and internships and those kinds of things that really do say that we are serious about this ministry. The district presbytery commends you on your progress toward this ordination. We also challenge you to make your calling fully established as an ordained minister of the gospel. Many times in districts that are smaller, it's difficult to find enough people who are ordained to serve in various ways in our district. We want our candidates to go all the way to ordination, and we're delighted to see that you're doing that. You're going to have many opportunities open to you to lead and to minister in ways that you would not have had you not done this. You were not called to go part way, but all the way in your preparation as the Lord helps you. The Lord used those who are prepared, uses those who are prepared. In your preparation, we urge you to prepare yourself for the highest level of your calling in Christ Jesus. When you think of your service in the kingdom of God, look at it as you did your work 
life. You didn't want to just get in part way and just kind of do that thing that you felt you were going to be all right with because life changes. The demands uh, come and, and you may not be making enough money or whatever uh, in that job that you were looking at. But let me tell you, just like our brother was saying tonight, when you begin to step out in faith to God, uh, it's like that first child. Can we really afford this, you know? But God will always meet you in that exercise of faith. In the next year or two, you may be standing here uh, for ordination. Those that, that are, uh, have had upgrades in their um, status over the past year. On behalf of the district presbytery, we urge you to pursue the completion of your studies and qualifications with all diligence in obedience to your high calling. Our Lord told his church, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. As believers, we hold resolutely to our Lord's directive to promote both a word and a world-centered ministry. Scripturally, we understand that our calling and authority as ministers of the gospel is derived from our head, the Lord Jesus Christ. There used to be a time when Mama used to push a lot of us into the ministry. But we want you to know that it's important that you know that God has called you to this place. In the fourth chapter of Ephesians, Paul tells us that God has given the church gifted persons that are to work together in order to edify the church the body of Christ. Every minister is set apart for one, or in some cases, a combination of these five ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The Assemblies of God's statement of fundamental truth says, the ministry is a divinely called and scripturally ordained ministry that has been provided for by our Lord for a threefold purpose. Number one, the evangelization of the world we got a lot of work to do. Secondly, the worship of God. And we ought to do that with all of our hearts. And thirdly, the building of a body of saints who are being perfected in the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Ordination to the full gospel ministry is a significant acknowledgement. It is a public observant observance by which the General Council Credentials Committee acknowledges this divine call commission and qualification of a person to ministry within the assembly of God fellowship. The general council thereby extends its approval and blessing through the South Carolina district of the assemblies of God to those who come here today to be ordained. I'm going to ask our executive leadership team We are going to have a song at this time. <laughs> Thank you.
going to ask our executive leadership team if they will take their positions. Thank you for that wonderful number. Very encouraging. Okay. It is our pleasure to introduce the candidates for ordination at this the 71st South Carolina District Council. As I turn to the candidates, as I read your names, please stand with your spouse and remain standing. Deborah Ambrose, Larry Ambrose, Rachel Butler, Alan Dawkins, James Evans, Charles Howell, Jr., Janet Maroney, Roger Quisenberry, Robert S. Rucci, Holly Short. As Executive Secretary Treasurer of the South Carolina District Council of the Assemblies of God, I certify that the candidates who stand before you, Brother Chair, Brother Superintendent, have completed all requirements for ordination to the full gospel ministry with the General Council of the Assemblies of God. Thank you. All approved candidates for ordination, would you please step forward to the base of the steps or right just in front of the altar uh, rail there with your spouses and face me, please. Wow, what an awesome group. Amen. We would like to lead you through the act of ordination at this time. With God's help, do you solemnly pledge to give yourselves unreservedly to the ministry, to live and serve as become vessels chosen of God to lead men from darkness to light? With God's help, will you pledge to further Uphold the name of the Lord in the eyes of the world and live lives that become your high and holy calling. With God's help, will you love and defend God's people so as to bring unity and blessing, giving special regard to your to holding credentials, brothers and sisters in high esteem. With God's help, in the tradition of the first apostles, will you give yourself to prayer and the study of the Word of God? With God's help, will you always seek to do the will of God? I'd like to mention several symbols that will be meaningful in your ministry. First, the cross. We are people of the cross. We are people that believe in what Christ has done to save this world. It is not by our will or anything that people are saved. It's through the cross that they come to know Christ as Savior. It is a sign through the ages of the loved, motivated sacrifice that you'll be willing to make for those you are called to serve. Matthew 16, 24 and 25 makes this clear. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life 
shall, lo- shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. So we are being willing to take up our cross as Christ bore the cross that he did and follow him. Secondly, is one of the anointing oil. Wherever you go, go with an expectancy to see miraculous things happen. See what appears to us as interruptions instead as divine appointments for God to show his power in and through your life and love. In James 5.14, we're instructed, is any one of you sick? He should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Go expectantly with that oil of healing that God will allow you to use and minister people to people as you go with that expectancy to see God work. The final sign is a towel. The towel symbolizes a servant or the type of a servant leadership that Jesus modeled for everyone who would answer the call to ministry. John 13, 3 through 5 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Servanthood is what we're about. As I mentioned this morning, in the secular world, it's about how many people we control and how much we can amass. But in this point of your life, in saying, I'm a servant of God, we are about how many people we can serve and how much we can give away of what God has given to us. Give it freely. The charge I would like to give you at this time, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing, if the presbyters would come and stand before them, I'm going to ask you to to turn around and face them with your Bible. As you take this charge, you need to have them standing there with your Bible because they're a part of this charge. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Watch in all things. Make full proof of your ministry. By the authority invested in me as superintendent of the South Carolina District Council of the Assemblies of God, and on behalf of the General Council, I hereby pronounce your ordination to the full gospel ministry in the Church of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you, Lord. We would like for you at this time, presbyters, to lay hands on them and pray over them. Those who are in the audience that have come to pray with a certain candidate, please feel free to move into position at this time if you're not already up here. Hallelujah. Would you pray with us for these candidates tonight as these presbyters lay hands on them and ordain them? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Jesus, we praise you, Lord. If the candidates will stay in place, we would like to give you the opportunity to come by and congratulate them. And we'll have our presbyters and wives, if you'll go ahead and make your way to the front so that you can be the first to do that. And after you've completed greeting them, there is a reception in their honor that is uh, in place over in the collision building, number six. And uh, everyone is invited to attend that so you can have further opportunity to congratulate them. So presbyters and wives, come and let's uh, uh, congratulate these folks. Thank God. What an awesome, awesome thing God is doing here in South Carolina through our ministers. Let's give them a good hand tonight. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. 